Hi listeners, before you go any further, please note that this episode, all of this episode, contains spoilers for Way of X numbers 1 and 2. Listen at your own risk. Jay, I am so excited we were able to get Sai on the show today. Ugh, I know, Miles. Way of X is so good. Well, yeah, but also, it means delaying covering Onslaught another week. Ooh, that is an excellent point. So, Sai, welcome. We were just talking about how much we've been enjoying Way of X. Oh, thank you, guys. I guess it's it's just been such a pleasure to bring back... Legion? Dr. Nemesis. Uh, no. Onslaught. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 336 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome also to our incredible guest this episode, Cy Spurrier, one of our very favorite X and otherwise writers. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back, guys. Yeah, it's been since episode, like, double digits, I think, since we've had you. A long time ago. We're all so old. (laughs) Old and gray and scarred and grizzled. Um, But yeah, for any listeners who were not around back in, I don't know, 1912 or whenever we did that episode, um, Sai, you've written, like, a bunch of X stuff. You've done... A bunch of one-shots, some stuff from Curse of the Mutants, various other ones. You did X-Club, you did the X-Men Legacy run with Legion, you did that run of X-Force with Marrow and uh, Cable and uh, and everybody, and all of them were great. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's weird. Uh, in my head, I'm not an X-Writer. Like, I've done these occasional little stints, and uh, X-Men Legacy is the thing that always kind of pops to my brain when I think of my work in the X-World, and then... When, as you just have, people rattle off all the credits. Oh my god, I really am old. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. But um, but yeah, I guess the, the stuff that's going on now, it, it feels... Because it's such a funny, extraordinary, exciting time in the world of X. And it's such a cohesive unit to be part of the office and to be working with these other writers and artists. It sort of feels now more so than at any time in the past, like I am now an X-Writer, and I was sort of a fraud before. I was going to say, you say you don't think of yourself as an X-Writer, but with Way of X, I mean, you've, you're pretty much the soul of the line at this point. <laughs> Which is a terrible, terrible indictment on the stay of the soul. If I'm if I'm the heart and soul of anything, then it's time to worry. But but yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly the way that the book is presenting itself, and, and we seem to be getting away with it so far. So before we dive in any further, for any listeners that are unfamiliar, what's your elevator pitch for the new X book that you're writing, Way of X? Oh, it's uh, a book about the creation of a mutant religion, except it's absolutely not a book about the creation of a mutant religion. I yeah, okay, that that is that works. Yes, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very me answer. It's it's the book where we focus on the hearts and minds of what it is to be a mutant in this new era. Um, All the other books are doing an extraordinary job of focusing on the incredible things that mutants do uh, in a kind of heroic, uh, nationalistic, um, 
slightly militaristic kind of way. And I realised that what, what we were missing was the book where we keep the home fires burning, the, the book where we wonder what it's like to actually be a mutant in this new incredible civilization, um, And of course, to, to explore what that looks like in a way which is familiar to X-Men fans, which is to be bold and exciting and action-filled and funny and all the things that we desperately want from our X-Books, but to hopefully, in a non-preachy way, present a thoughtful look at what's going on inside mutants' minds and, and inside their hearts and their souls while they deal with the weird shit that has happened to them since they became the, the, the kind of dominant species on the planet Earth. So your vehicle for a lot of this is Nightcrawler, who's, who's coming in with, with a very, very strong religious background and sort of set of beliefs and is struggling to reconcile those with things like the metaphysics of Krakoan resurrection. In, in going into to writing this, how much of Nightcrawler's previous religious background is, is informing his take? How much is, is he able to sort of jump in and start fresh with Kirko and with sort of the idea that this is something entirely new and different? Mm. I mean, it's it's a fantastic question and, and it, it, it goes to why I gave such a weaselly answer to the, the elevator pitch question because um, at one and the same time, this is a book which regards the big questions of Krakoa and, and the, the current mutant status quo through the perspective of religion, but very quickly realizes that to focus on any particular creed, um, especially to try and present a completely new one, would A, offend literally everybody, <laughs> which we don't <laughs> want to do, uh, and B, would not answer any of the questions that we want to answer. So. Um, the reason that I love Nightcrawler, and I suspect the reason that most people love Nightcrawler, is that even though he comes from a position of faith, even though he is an ordained Catholic minister, he does not present as somebody dogmatic. He does not present as somebody who seems to believe he knows all the answers to everything. Quite the opposite. And there's this beautiful dichotomy that this character who looks like one of the least human-looking X-Men feels the most in touch with his humanity. And that's really interesting. And, and I say this, by the way, as somebody who is very comfortable being completely agnostic about religion. I, I like to think I know more about religion than most people, even those who define themselves as religious, because I'm fascinated by it, and I've done an awful lot of very tedious homework. But I don't intend to espouse any particular view, because I don't think that, certainly not in the, the situations we're creating in this story, that is what's needed. What's needed is new ideas and approaching the, the new status quo of the X-Men, and this is, this is the core of beautiful world-building science fiction, by the way, approaching it through the eyes of somebody who is prejudiced, and, and I mean that in a non-pejorative way, he's prejudiced in the fact that he comes from a belief system which is perhaps no longer relevant in his new world, but he will inevitably bring that prejudice to 
his outlook, and it causes him to ask questions that we therefore have to answer. So to give you the obvious example, which is right there in issue one, here we have a society which has defeated death, as they would like to say. In, in the current X-Men world, if a mutant dies, they can be resurrected. Now, there are questions about exactly what it is to be resurrected and whether the you who comes back is the you who died. And there's all these big worrying things that would definitely keep people awake if they were going through this every day of their lives. But as is so often the case, the children are the ones who adapt to this so much faster than the adults. You can quite quickly imagine that if you were having fun in a society where death did not seem to be the final frontier anymore, it's not a great leap towards utilizing death as part of a thrill culture. You know, hey, I can do something daft and it doesn't matter if I die because I'll come back tomorrow. That's fun. Let's just, let's just lean into that. Now, Nightcrawler coming from his background, his specifically Catholic background, but more broadly from a very human world background, recoils from that. He thinks that's wrong. Why? You can't do that. And the kids say, why? And he has no answer. He's like, well, it, it's wrong. And they say, why is it wrong? But well, it, it's just wrong. No, no, tell us why it's wrong. And there isn't an answer because in this new paradigm, that's not necessarily wrong. Now, what we're going to find over the course of this series is that there are very good reasons why that might in fact be wrong. Um, and so... The Way of X is about asking these questions and discovering that there are some really nasty things which are poised and waiting to be the answers if we let them. So I want to keep talking about Nightcrawler because there's a phrase you use repeatedly and you're talking about nasty things that come up to describe him, which is one of the kindly ones. And that's, that's such a double-edged epithet. <laughs> Because that's that's I mean I'm I'm sure a lot of listeners are already going to be familiar, but that's that's a that's a common epithet for things like the Furies and the thing you call the fairies so that they don't kidnap your children, spoil your milk, and kill you. Like it's it's the kind of thing specifically that you call things that you want to have think that you think they're kindly in desperate hopes that they'll act that way against their natures. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and it it's one of those things that if if a reader doesn't get that, doesn't know that that's a loaded term in the kind of um, euhemeristic mythological background sense, then they're not going to miss that. But yeah, there there comes a moment. I think it's in issue four where he's just had enough. And you realize that he is actually very capable of being judgmental and he does have a nasty streak when it's um, when it's evoked. Um, and you realize that, yeah, people really should be <laughs> trying to keep on his good sides because, oh, my God, you don't want to have a bad side. Well, and that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about, about Nightcrawler. I mean, I think on the podcast, Jay, you and I tend to talk about Storm as sort of the iconically multifaceted X-Men character. But in his own way, Nightcrawler is almost even more so. And there's this great scene in uh, Way of X where we see Nightcrawler's like psyche represented. And there are all these different Nightcrawlers, Pirate Nightcrawler and Clown Nightcrawler and Priest Nightcrawler. And that's one of the things that I love about him in this book is he becomes this this representative of potentially a number of different outlooks. And that's what makes him perfect for that position. 
In large part, I suspect we tend to overlook him for that role just because where we are in coverage, it's been so long since he's been a member of the X-Men. True, true. Everyone forgets that he spent, like, uh, the better part of a decade completely away from the team. Maybe more. Yeah, he's uh, he's exactly what you said. Multifaceted, complex, and conflicted, I think. And, and that's doesn't necessarily make the simplest character or the easiest character to get along with, but it definitely makes for the most interesting characters and, and I think the most relatable. Well, and I guess continuing on the character thread, I mean, one of the biggest uh, pleasant surprises for me was you bringing back one of my favorite X-Men characters, that being Legion. Speaking of multifaceted characters... And so, yeah, seeing him and Nightcrawler just get to play off of each other, that's a dynamic I was not expecting. Was that, I, I, was Legion the plan from the start, from that initial Cy Spurrier internal elevator pitch? Uh, from very early on, yeah. Um, I, I, I have ridiculously bad memory, so it, it's difficult for me to explain exactly where parts of the idea coalesced and, and kind of accreted. Um whether, for instance, I had read X-Men, is it seven? The the one where we sort of see Crucible for the first time and, and it sort of sets up a lot of the questions that we explore in Way of X. Um, I couldn't now tell you whether I read that before starting to think about a book about answering mutant religion sort of questions or whether that came before, I honestly don't know. Um, but very early on, for reasons which haven't entirely become apparent by, by this point in the run, we're only up to two, I think, um, it became very clear to me that Legion needed to be part of it. Um, some of that is purely um, to work with the kind of soap opera aspects that we all love when it comes to X. You know, there's so much unsaid between him and Xavier, so much drama to be had from this... Um, revolutionary dreamer, this man of profound duty and responsibility who at the same time is just the fucking worst father you've ever, ever heard of. <laughs> and, and you know, that's the thing. That's actually, there's, there's a couple of really good books written by kids of revolutionaries who are like, well, you know, mom was amazing, but I don't think she ever hugged me. That That's not a, not an unusual story. So there's lots of great drama to be had there. Um, but hey, uh, we touched on this before. One of the things that I'm I'm known for is the, the run on X-Men Legacy, which was all about um, twisting the age-old metaphors that have always made X-Men comics so important, uh, in which the condition of being a mutant stands in for all kinds of things. You don't need me to tell you guys this, you know this. Um, to do with any sort of societal othering and to, to show that there is power in, in being different and to finding your own people and all of those wonderful things. And X-Men Legacy, for me, was the first time that I got to use that metaphor to speak to mental health issues. And again, in a hopefully non-preachy way and in a way that was fun and interesting and full of big ideas. Um, 
And it's funny, I was having this, this conversation last week about, you know, if I die tomorrow, would I feel like I had achieved everything that I set out to achieve? And the answer was no, of course not. No writer, no, no creator ever really does. We are venal, overambitious creatures. And every time you think you've reached the horizon, there's another fucking horizon. That's, that's the condition of being an artist, capital A artist. But every time I go to a convention, which hasn't happened for a while, but every time I used to go to conventions... Somebody would come up to me and say words to the effect of, I wanted to thank you because I read X-Men Legacy and it gave me strength that I didn't realise I had. And that's amazing and huge, bigger than I can ever fit into my mind. And my answer, by the way, is always, mate, it wasn't me who gave you strength, it was you who gave you strength. I just love that the thing you read is what made you sit up and find the strength to rule yourself, which is what Legion's all about. So, long story short, when they said to me, hey, do you want to write a book about X-Men doing thoughtful philosophical things, it was kind of a no-brainer <laughs> that we bring back that character. Um, I wrapped up X-Men Legacy in a really perverse and mischievous way that I thought took the character off the table because I was like, well, if I'm not writing him, no fucker's going to write him. And then, because of course it would, the character was brought back very quickly um, and so we've just sort of leaned into that and, and explored the idea that maybe David Haller Legion is inevitable in some way and what it means to be inevitable and, and what it feels like to, to be used, to be the plot device, to, to like, hey, I mean, spoilers to those of you who haven't read number two yet, but it turns out some bad people have been using the inside of David Haller's mind which is this um, kind of closed pocket universe populated by an infinite supply of eccentric personalities, each of which represents one of the superpowers that he has access to. So it's this kind of seethingly chaotic closed world in its own right. Now, when he's in there, he can control that. And that's, that's what we explored during X-Men Legacy all those years ago. But now, some bad people have found a way to pluck him out of it, and to use the resulting anarchic reality to model the inevitable collapse of Krakoa. It's like a little mini microcosm of Krakoa. It's a, uh, a hugely populated uh, city-state of super-powered individuals all squished up together. Now, that's not something we've ever seen in the Marvel Universe before, but here it is, right there on Earth, on an island, um, so that's kind of at the heart of X-Men, of, uh, of Way of X. How do you stop a densely populated group of superhumans from going kaboom? Because they will, <laughs> because they, they haven't figured out who they are yet. They're all kind of excitable. They all dress in fetish gear. They are all clearly drinking and taking too many narcotics, and yeah, something's going to go wrong unless somebody finds a way of uniting them all, giving them some sort of uh, societal, cultural, national, whatever it is, all identity that they can all belong to and that makes them all feel equally as important as each other. Your mention of narcotics brings us kind of naturally to <laughs> another way, huh? yeah to another character that we we're, we're seeing you return to and that's of course dr nemesis mm -hmm. 
who we've seen very little of on Krakoa previously, and who is interacting with it in, in his, his own inimitable way. <laughs> yeah, he's... I mean, it, it will surprise you not at all, based on recent waffling about Legion, that I have these characters that I always come back to, and, and Dr. Nemesis is one of them. He's... Um, he's like all the pompous cynical, sarcastic, snobbish, Fraser Crane-esque-ness of me swaddled up in mad science. And and that's a really cool thing. <laughs> I mean he's not he's not there because people like him. He's there because he's an ass, but he's kind of a wonderful ass. And uh, and yes, he his new look, his his brand new vibe is uh He's growing Krakoan psychedelics out of his own cerebellum. <laughs> so he's this sort of walking fungal hipster with, with sort of a beautifully coiffured cordyceps hairdo. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, going from uh, the psychic starfish on his head way back in the day <laughs> to now this on his head, I appreciate that he takes what was a trauma and turns it into an opportunity. <laughs> Yes, sure. you didn't hear a listener question as well. Uh, someone was wondering whether that's the reason for his change in hair color. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. The uh, the 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 funky beard. I mean, the the joke that I've read more than once is that at at this point in the real world where we're all wearing bloody face masks, he's the only one who's taken his off. But uh, but yeah, he's just he's such a cool character, and I we wanted to enliven the the visual a little bit to. To make him not just a, a slightly sinister, white-clad guy in a surgical mask and a fedora, so um, I think we succeeded. He's certainly more eccentric than he was. Um, there's some cool stuff coming down the pipe with regard to to what he actually does, because his like his mutant power is a little bit weirdly defined. It's like self-evolving brain. That's that's kind of all that we know. Is in my mind, he's able to. Um, rewrite parts of his own mind so they're better or worse at certain things and, and shifting his emotional intelligence with his intellectual intelligence and so on. So it, it just sort of it felt like um, a natural evolution of that for him to be planting things into his own grey matter <laughs> and controlling the growth of them. Well, I guess, like, while we're at it, we might as well round out the cast, because for me, the most surprising major character, one who hasn't been one of your, your standbys the way that um, certainly Legion and Nemesis have been, is Pixie. Like, she sort of seems to be the chosen representative of that Krakoan youth culture, that kind of budding relationship with Krakoan philosophy, with resurrection, with death, with that sort of thing. So, why Pixie? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I just like the character, I guess. I feel like she's been underrepresented. Um, to go back to some stuff we touched on before, I feel like she has more than one string to her bow. You know, she's she's got some magic things going on. She's got like a soul dagger thing going on. She can do the teleporting. She's got this incredible um, pseudo hallucinogenic pixie dust thing, which 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 is very kind of on brand. This is a book where. When you confront a problem as a superhero, you don't hit it. You make it hallucinate or you, uh, I don't know, rapture it into the nth dimension. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of always thinking sideways rather than doing stuff the conventional way. And, and that feels very 
Pixie. Um, I also think that she's in common with Kurt. I feel like she's empathetic and um, quite human, despite not necessarily looking very human. Maybe there's a maybe there's a sort of emergent motif there. I also think it's interesting that if you really delve into the lore, she's she sort of had portions of her humanity somewhat um, mitigated and and um, adulterated by that whole soul dagger business. So, like Kurt, she's somebody who presents as being quite nice, but has actually probably got some some steel. She's also one of the rare rare characters whose phonetic accent I don't think any writer has ever attempted to do. <laughs> I give it a go, but I mean, hey. Like the line, the line seems to be Welsh. Yeah, I mean, Welsh is such a tricky one, especially for for US readers, because it's, I just don't think it's a, a, as a really thick accent, I don't think it's one that you guys hear much. So if I, if I tried to write it very phonetically, it would probably come across as absolute gibberish. I'm lucky, one of my close friends is a, a writer called Rob Williams, who's done a bunch of stuff for Marvel, amongst other places, and he is very Welsh. Um, on this side of the pond, like I have this dumb thing where most of the major regions with their own accents, there's usually like a, a, a tell word. Like, so for Northern Irish, the word is mirror. You don't say mirror, you say mur. I like the mur, and that's how you do the Northern Irish accent. For, for Welsh, the word is here, as in I heard a rumor. I heard a rumor. That's where. But I mean, that's a terrible accent, by the way. I'm useless at accents. <laughs> my uh, my Welsh accent always sounds Indian for some reason. But uh, that is to explain why I'm not trying to write Pixie in a purely phonetic way, <laughs> other than the occasional phrase. But that's that's always sort of been the Marvel slash X Men way. It's the same with Nightcrawler. You know, when I read his dialogue. It's always with a slightly Bavarian accent, but it doesn't really come out unless he sticks in the odd ja or nine or got in himmel or any of that stuff. <laughs> I did appreciate uh, Nemesis's commentary that, uh, oh, so David's doing the accent again when he first yeah. showed up. <laughs> what joy. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's really just a, a like a stylistic choice on my part with David. It's, it's kind of um, a way of saying this is my legion rather than anybody else's legion. So, as we mentioned in the cold open, um, the timing of, of your big villain reveal was was um, somewhat, yeah, sort of expeditious for us, sort of the, the opposite. Um, but it does give us the opportunity to take advantage of your presence here and offload some heavy lifting. So... you're you're writing about him. you're You're part of a writer's room that's presumably been discussing him. Can you explain onslaught to us, please? <laughs> no, I cannot. Not even, not even slightly. Uh, uh, no, no. You would, you would be far better at that than I. Uh, my approach is um, godlike astral parasite based in some slightly ill-defined way upon the worst traits of Xavier and Magneto which somehow got together and had a psychic astral baby, which is now a 20-foot-tall, clanking, purple obscenity. Um, that's as I understand it from the kind... Like, it's so 90s, isn't it? It's, like, classically 90s. The, the, the take that I have brought through is 
a little different and has been sort of mutated, no pun intended, by circumstance. And we'll, we'll sort of explore that a little bit more. Um, so my version is a... Well, hey, I mean, I touched on this before. If, if these bad people have been using David Haller's brain as a model to find ways to expedite um, the, the social decay of Krakoan society. And the way they figured out how to do that is to inject something which makes everybody a little bit more selfish and a little bit more um, aggressive, a little bit more violent, a little bit more sensory, um, a little bit less empathetic than out here in the real world, that's what they've tried to achieve by inserting Onslaught. And they've done it in a way that we don't know yet, and it's all very sneaky and clever, and there's a little bit of a kind of mystery, manhunt thing that's going to develop. Um, which is the long-winded way of saying, I'm using Onslaught in a really fucking cool way that means I don't have to worry about any of that shit from the 1990s. <laughs> Nonetheless, I feel like that explanation was adequate that, Jay, you and I don't have to cover Onslaught anymore. We're just going <laughs> to skip straight to Operation Zero Tolerance. Uh, it'll be easy. Sounds fair. No, um, what, what interests me about that and what interests me about the angle you're going forth is that it's focused on, on the parasitic little toothy thing at the core of Onslaught, which which is is the least divine, defined and I think most often forgotten aspect of of. Onslaught, because we, we think of, of Onslaught as this, the, the end of the Xavier Magneto horror astral baby. But there's something else that's part of it that's never really been defined. It's just this other thing. Well, I mean, it's kind of been defined via retcon. It's it's evil Magneto. It just makes me think of the uh, the strangers from Dark City with the little chittering squid things in their heads. <laughs> well, they, they are the chittering squid things. The, the human bodies are just vehicles. Well, there you go. The red and purple armor is just vehicle. But I feel like we're getting we're getting off track. If we start talking about Onslaught, then there's the rest of the, the episode. So, <laughs> All right. The big takeaway then is that he clanks. Yes. Yes. Okay. Always clanks. Always clanking. Uh, Clayton Cowles, my letterer, has been uh, working on his clanking on a matapia. So uh, we're all good. <laughs> Our producer's kind of been doing the same. Maybe Matt and Clayton should talk. I don't know. <laughs> but let's go back to a character that um perhaps is a little more relevant so far to the first couple issues. I mean, I got to come back to Nightcrawler. Like, he's been written in so many different directions from, you know, Swashbuckler to that thing where he turned into an evil pope that one time. Like, so I was curious, Sai, do you have any sort of definitive formative Nightcrawler stories yourself? Or is it more of just a synthesis of, of everything you've been able to find? Like, what's where are you coming from with Kurt? I mean, it's more the latter than the former. Um, I, I thought about this recently, and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, the The stories that my brain goes to when when people talk about the character are the funny little interstitial ones where he just goes off on a road trip with Logan, or you know, those those ones, the cute ones, where he's just being the straight guy or or being the sort of the human ish one who's responding to the outside world rather than punching and kicking. So, I mean, look, I know that there is an awful lot of stuff to do with souls and religion and, and stuff that takes that whole scene <laughs> very literally, which, apropos the, the, the waffle I was boring you with at the top of this, 
is not very helpful to the questions that we're trying to solve in, in the Krakoan era. So, um, whereas I don't want to cross through anything and say, as far as I'm concerned, that never happened, um, the, the object with that sort of thing is to sort of be respectful of it, to say, sure, that's all part of the character's backstory, but it's not the most relevant thing to this. Um, so that's not the stuff that I think of when I think of the best hits of Kurt Wagner. I don't know that there is, in my view, a killing joke version of the Nightcrawler story, you know, the sort of the definitive evergreen Nightcrawler tale. Um, I guess that's that's kind of what I'm hoping that I'm that I'm working on right now. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, not to let your head get too big, but uh, yeah, so far so good on that one. The first two issues, like, listeners, seriously, even if you're not following the full Krakoan line and all 72 books in it, like, this one's worth your time. I appreciate you saying so, and that's why it's so frustrating that I can't easily define what it's about. You know, so many people, I think, gave issue one a miss because they expected it to be this preachy nonsense about a new mutant religion and then that's just not what it's about at all that's kind of where it where it starts and then very quickly realizes that there are serpents in eden and we need to find them and kill them so you mentioned you mentioned early on that that kurt sets out to develop a new mutant religion and immediately realizes that that's not a feasible goal Aside from fixing the stuff that's going wrong, what what philosophically is he trying to do? Because we're seeing we're seeing writings emerge over the course of this book. Um, what what would you say is is sort of the goal he's working to at this point um, in that regard? It's about uniting people. It's like we keep we keep touching on this. Um, if you're Billy No Spandex, who is a mutant who lives on Krakoa but has never been in any of the big teams you would be forgiven for feeling kind of left out because every time you turn around there's the the big A-listers flying around doing incredible stuff we're about to see an awful lot more of that when the Hellfire Gala comes there's a little a little tease there for you um, but there's nobody really making like for me okay that the single greatest thing in a society, and, and this is totally betraying my ideological and political optimistic streak, uh, which is quite distinct, I think, from a lot of the way that the, the nations of the world today work. But for me, the single greatest thing any nation can do is to make every citizen feel like they are an equally important part of the story. Now, if you're a mutant on Krakoa, you do not feel like an equally important part of the story. In fact, you probably think, here I am, haven't got a job, uh, all my food and pleasure and booze and everything I could possibly want is here in front of me. I don't really have any point. I'm not sure what I'm doing. And you can imagine a lot of them are just sitting around all day in the little green lagoon getting ruined. Uh, a lot of them are probably having big fights. It is a recipe for explosion, but we don't see that in most of the X-Books because we're focused on the people who do have things to do. They're running around, they're saving the world, they're rerouting out threats to mutant kind and all the rest of it. So I wanted to tell the story in which somebody realises 
this cannot last. This is unsustainable. At some point, this is a society which never really got the chance to be a society because it collapsed before it began, because nobody in it has any meaning. And so what Nightcrawler is looking for is a big idea to unite people. Now, without getting into the the really boring Dunbar number type stuff, there's a there's a limit to how many relationships any person can have. And one of the, the best and most convincing, in my view, theories about the origins of super, the supernatural and religion is that it allows a small tribe to become a big tribe. Now, for all the reasons that I've already waffled about, a simple, straightforward religion is not going to be the answer in this case. So what Nightcrawler is looking for is a big idea which unites everybody and makes them all feel like they belong to something which is bigger than themselves, which they're all a part of, and which gives them hope and courage going forwards. Now, I know what that is because that was the first idea I had when I pitched this thing. But the first arc of this book is very much the journey to get to the point where Nightcrawler says, I've got it. So just briefly, you mentioned first arc, and I know one can never be sure with the way modern comics work, but this is intended as a, a, a forever ongoing, he said optimistically. Um, I'm not going to answer that in a straightforward way. Um, in an oblique way, the story happens in an forever and ever ongoing kind of way, but not, not in the simple way that you would imagine. <laughs> So you're such a prick. Why can't you answer anything straight? <laughs> I feel great about yeah, this. No, no. Yeah, it's um, there's there's a whole bunch of of strange but very exciting stuff coming, which will elaborate and illuminate that uh, gnomic nonsense. But um, the story continues in an ongoing way. So we're probably at the point in the episode where we should turn turn the mic over to listener questions. And I've, I've got these in, in no particular order, so we're going to be kind of all over the map. Balarock starts by asking, is there a specific event in X-Men history that you would like to revisit and tell the story through your creative lens? Um, sort of. There's, um, like, in terms of simple, amazing spectacle moments, one of the formative ones for me in in uh, my years of reading X-Men comics was that moment when Kitty Pride phases the fucking great bullet through the planet, you know that bit? So um, that's something that I, I'm sort of doing my take on that. Oh, nice. So speaking of historical events, uh, Laura Kinney's asked, so Blindfold has been brought up a few times, specifically others mentioning her death while David avoids the subject. Last time we saw her, the X-Men were in Nate Gray's universe, and she was so overwhelmed by visions of her dying that she took her own life, an interesting parallel with what David did at the end of Legacy. Since it turns out the mutants are now thriving happily, Ruth's visions and death are now a mystery. Are we going to get to said mystery in Way of X? Um, that is a fantastic question, and it breaks my heart that I cannot answer it at this point. Legit. Legit. Yeah, that's something I was definitely wondering about as well. And I, I do appreciate that, um, Ruth, that Blindfold comes up almost immediately. One of the things I like uh, about your handling of this book is that it's very it's very continuity aware without being continuity obsessed. 
Well, I think it's it's something I waffle about all the time. In my view, canon continuity. These are Easter eggs with which you reward your um, loyal readers. They're not hurdles that everybody should have to leap over. All right, so I've got an easy one, hopefully easy one. This is from an anonymous listener who asks, will Rupert the Starfish be making an appearance in Way of X? <laughs> uh, I have no current plans to. Maybe I'll ask Bob to write him into the background of, draw him in the background of uh, Dr. Nemesis's lab, and that would be amazing. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of uh, background characters, after officially peer- appearing in the background of Way of X number two, an anonymous listener asks, will SoftServe finally become an active member of the cast? That is that is one solely for Bob. Uh, he, <laughs> I didn't even know about SoftServe until until he sent me that enlarged uh, enlarged picture. Also, I don't know if you know this, but somebody added it to the the Marvel wiki on like the official Marvel website so you know that's that's canon now um yeah no if if we run and run for years and years then absolutely there's a there's a place for soft scoop on us on our team um and actually just it seems like a good point to mention bob quinn is killing it on this book what's it like working with bob oh he's such a nice guy and i i had never met or spoken to him before we got put together for the book so a totally unknown quantity um, for me, and that's always a little bit nerve-wracking. It can go either way, but um, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the the quality speaks for itself. He does that amazing thing that you desperately want in a in a, a comic like this, where he can do the moments of really important emotional acting, but he can also do the funny. Like, there's a bit in. Let me see. It's probably issue three. No, issue four issue four where it's just joyously slapstick sequence and he nails it but then you turn the page and there's an incredibly heartfelt heart-rending moment and he nails that um so yeah i could not be happier with him and he's fast and, and that's that's quite a big deal in in our world you know somebody who is good and fast that's rarer than hen's teeth um so fast is he in fact that he got ahead of me and that never happens I'm, i have never ever been uh, been outstripped by an artist he got ahead of me and had time to go off and do another book in the x line and i don't even know if that's been announced yet so i probably better not say it just in case it hasn't um but yeah he's had time to go and do that and then come back to carry on <laughs> without missing a beat so oh. he's he's a machine Right. Um, another anonymous listener uh, says, at the start of Way of X number one, we see Charles waking up from a nightmare and going to a desk with pictures of all of his children, including Xandra and Charles Xavier II, who is from an alternate universe. Are we going to see any of those characters showing up? Or are we going to see an entire Xavier family get together? <laughs> no plans. Um like it's the sort of thing it's a detail that i wrote into the script and i assumed that if they weren't supposed to be there somebody would stop me <laughs> nobody stopped me so whether or not that's an oversight is uh is absolutely open to interpretation but um i think the 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 daughter has appeared in in some of the x line is that right there's yeah. there's uh, is it zandra i'm so bad with these names but mm-hmm. um i think she showed up in in one of jonathan's books um the sun, no plans at present, but um, but yeah, he's on the desk, so we know he's out there somewhere. It leaves me wondering about an alternate universe X-Men or 
mutant characters in Krakoa in general. Oof, that's a that's a can of worms. There's there's not a week goes by on the X Slack that we don't get mired down in those conversations. I mean, we're already getting pretty esoteric with Way of X, so we just need like Way of Way of X or Way of Multiverse X. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's just deep deep rabbit hole with Ways of X. <laughs> Uh, let's do one last question from listeners, another anonymous listener, or possibly the same anonymous listener. We have no way of knowing. We're seeing a lot of buildup to the Charles and David fight that's set to appear in Way of X number four. From the way he was conceived to his treatment during and post-New Mutants, David has always been a symbol of Charles' greatest mistakes, and while Charles tells Kurt that mutants upgraded morality, he does feel guilty about being a bad father. How do those two ideas coincide? Does David likewise see Charles as the source of all the awful things he went through? It's a it's a really good question. It's um it's one of those ones where a lot of the drama comes from them just sitting opposite each other and not really knowing what the hell to say. And I mean I'll I'll give you a little spoiler to to kind of encapsulate how I think their relationship works. Um they sit down opposite each other in the Green Lagoon where all the all the major drama in Krakoa goes down over giant oversized tiki jugs. And uh Charles says some stuff and David's really scathing about it. And and by the way, I, like for me, no, that's a whole separate conversation, but I, I love the differences between these two characters, I guess is the short version. But when David is so blunt and scathing to Charles's face, Xavier says something like, you don't like me very much, do you, son? And David says, it's worse than that, dad. I love you. I just don't know why. Hmm. And that, for me, is their relationship. He loves him because he knows what an amazing person he is. He has never, ever stepped off the path to this all-consuming dream. And it's it's caused him to do some pretty questionable stuff because he is so driven to do it. But it means that in every other respect, he is a really shitty person. <laughs> That's the problem. The one person who needed him to be something other than a dreamer and a revolutionary is his son, and he let him down so badly. Okay, I think we're out of time at this point. Um, before we sign off, Cy, where can folks find you online? Uh, mostly on Twitter, much more than I should be, um, at Cy Spurrier. All right, and we'll link to that in the visual companion. Thank you again so much for joining us and for taking the time to talk with us about Way of X. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry for waffling. No, but it was it was interesting waffling, so it works out. We are, we are, we are pro-waffles here. Who doesn't love waffles? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moonhyphentalk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to this week's guest, Cy Spurrier. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for a visual companion to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Black Air continues to cause problems. And Captain Britain gets a taste of Hellfire. Hellfire.